Welcome to The Truth In This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I have the privilege of being in conversation with a service designer who provides creative problem solving and innovation strategies to clients. He lives and breathes design, combining his passion for the arts and business with business acumen. A multidisciplinary thinker, he earned his BS in industrial and systems engineering at North Carolina A&T, um, his MA in design leadership from MICA, and his MBA from Johns Hopkins. Please welcome Brandon Ball. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. And let's um, let's get right into it. I, you know, you talk to somebody when, you know, you hear design, design is out there living and breathing it. You know, I want to get that design story. So if you if you if you will give us that kind of elevator pitch, your your um, vital stats, your background like that, I really that I didn't cover in the, in the synopsis. And right. also, what's your design story? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of give you a, a flavor of what kind of got me into design. So undergrad, while I was at A&T, I was a part of a crew. We used to throw some parties, right? And once one of the guys left, I was he was a, a year ahead of me. He left. He was making all the flyers. And then I was like, I want to do this. And we were trying to do a party. And I was like, reach out to someone. It was like, oh, it's going to be this much. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not charging that much or paying that much. So you know, being an engineer, I knew somebody that kind of had the Adobe Creative Suite hacked it for me, and I was like, okay, let me grab a copy of this. Let me just teach myself how to do this. And I, it's something I, I found that I enjoyed, and people start reaching out to me to do the same thing. So even when I started my professional career after I graduated, people would start reaching out to me like, hey, do some flyers. So the way I kind of got into it from that angle, but then when I was working as an engineer at General Electric, you know, you know, we've heard in the news, General Electric like started laying off a lot of people. I was a part of one of those layoffs and I was like, okay, this is a part of my career. I want to do something more creative that I'm more passionate about. So that kind of led me to do some research about different graduate programs. So I was looking at traditional MBA programs, but I was also looking at like just design schools. So at the time, design management became a thing or service design. I was looking, and since I'm from Atlanta, I was looking at SCAD, which is in Savannah, but they have Atlanta, um, they have an Atlanta campus, and I actually took a few classes there. So, like, I always delve, and I was taking like a video class or a photography class. I just wanted to kind of enhance my creative skills. But when I found out about the program with Johns Hopkins and Micah, and I went and came and visited, I was like, "Oh, this is the perfect fit. I get the best of both worlds. I get an MBA and a design degree. Yeah. More on a strategic level too, because even though I know I can dabble in the creative suite, like." I have friends that are like taught or, you know, they went to school for graphic design or animation. They can run circles around me, but I appreciate the aesthetics they provide, but I still want to kind of tap into it. So that's kind of like, you know, a high level how I kind of got into design. I'm coming from a, you know, a technical background, kind of pivoting over to a more creative side. So. Yeah. I find I find that, and thank you for sharing that. I, I find that um, being able to combine some of those problem solving skills, and I rely on my problem solving skills as well. I'm a data analyst by day. Right. Um, that you you it's a it's a certain side of the brain that you're using to be able to creatively like work around certain things, kind of you know maybe not jump over, maybe not run through, but maybe get around certain roadblocks. So um, that's that's what I find that's interesting. Um, so I w- I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the connection to the Open Studies program. So Correct. could from your vantage point, how would you define that the mission of the Open Studies program and what resonated most with you about that mission? Yeah, so. Like I said, I think 
I didn't, to be quite candid, when I visited the program, I didn't know like design leadership was in open studies or vice versa. But I mean, the fact that they're looking at it from a professional standpoint and having offering more programs that are more innovative or kind of meet the new industry needs, that's sure. kind of what resonated with me. So the fact that they went out and say, okay, we have this design leadership program, but we need a partner for MBA to kind of give you that traditional business background. I think they are being more forward thinking about what the industry needs. So that's kind of what resonates. And the funny thing is I actually, I'm now an adjunct faculty member in open studies. So yeah. like I graduated, now I'm teaching in their business of art and design program. So a big shout out to the open studies program for, you know, keeping things innovative. They actually reach out to me when they're thinking about piloting and coming up with new degree programs as well. So it's something, like I said, I think they're more forward thinking than most traditional art schools is going to look at this to fine arts and paints and things of that nature. Yeah. It's like they want to make sure that, you know, people come out of these programs that are, a play, a, they have skill sets that the industry needs when they come out. So, yeah. And, and, and I think from, from what I've heard in this series of interviews and the familiarity I have uh, just kind of taking on this, this series, um, just learn about a lot of like vision and kind of filling in vision, innovation and filling in and some of those kind of gaps that people who right. are creative may just not put a lot of attention and energy towards or people who know some of the business stuff, know some of the more um, admin sort of you know, those types of skills, how to apply that to something that may be more creative and how to work in tandem. I think that that's filling in like a chasm, a gap that's been out there that I think a lot of people recognize. And right. also right. just the variety of people that you can encounter in a classroom. Uh, I believe Trish Moore was mentioning between five and one, you know, one oh, um, between five and 105. That's the kind of age bracket of people <laughs> that are being served. And that's really great. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah, I do forget they do have like youth programming in the summertime. So absolutely. They they reach a, a mass of different people from different demographics. And that's what I will say about that, too. It's like most most schools like require you to have like a, a art or creative background once you're going to. But from the graduate level level for the, you know, the open studies programs, like I didn't have a art background and I got in. And then, you know, it's very multidisciplinary backgrounds to kind of go into these programs and you can help try to pivot your career because even like you look at the ux design programs and mm -hmm. data visualization there's people from all types of backgrounds like hey i want to try this out and you know change something in my career as well so yeah i mean data visualization is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger um you know not only do people want to be able to in, in bring in the numbers but and interpret the numbers and but people want a story that's there and Absolutely. you know that's something that's coming from ux that's something that's coming from data visualization and you know, I, I went into one of the programs, I believe it was uh, Business of Art and Design. Mm -hmm. And I was there as a client and having, you know, the, the people within the program, the students within the program break down this podcast and slice it and dice it and pitch it to me. That oh, was very interesting and kind of like understanding what I'm doing is more than a creative. I've always kept those two areas, those two sides, very separate and seeing how they kind of overlap. But for the most part, thinking of them as two desperate things. But right. now kind of seeing like, no, there is some overlap and I need to start considering in that manner. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you had to summarize what you do, right, like design, you know, you're design wizard. That's what, I was, that's what I'm just going to call you. You're, you've earned the role of design wizard in this uh, session. Right. Uh, how would you summarize in terms of doing one thing well how would you summarize what you do like 
And if I were to summarize this, I, I'm holding conversations with people. That's what I think I do well. Mm-hmm. So how would you summarize what you do in terms of doing one thing well? Yeah, I mean, so what I do essentially from a high level, I help companies or firms or organizations innovate in order to create better experiences. And I, from a service design and business design perspective, I'm looking more holistically. Yes. So I'm looking at what's the benefit for like a customer or a user, and I'm looking at what's the benefit for the, the business overall and the employees working at that business, right? So you see a lot of design disciplines like UX design is usually just looking at a user or UI, user interface, and you know, down to your graphic designers. But I say I kind of take from a big picture, I work with these other designers as well, but I'm more of the front end on the strategy perspective and saying, okay, what is this business trying to do or be in the next one to two to three or five years? Like, are we going to get, you know, displaced by a startup or something? So these are the kind of questions that I'm in conversations with these business. Like, okay, we're worried about this. What do we need to do in order to innovate? So I would say um, innovation design strategist is kind of what I, where I kind of sit. And then, but like I said, I work with all designers not even just designers, data scientists, all different multidisciplinary teams in order to come up with a solution that will appease, like I said, a user, a customer, or the business itself. So so with within working cross-functionally, right, with developers, mm-hmm. copywriters, project, everyone, right? Who Who's the, um, I think everyone has different traits, like you're, you're talking <laughs> with a designer right now, or right. you're talking with the art department, and or you're talking with um, external affairs, what have you. What comes to mind for you as far as like, all right, this is going to be a softball situation. This is going to be Chinese arithmetic. Like, you know, tell me about those that those those cross functional relationships. What are the more challenging ones? What are the ones that are kind of like, okay, they speak the language I'm, I'm in right now. They get where I'm coming from strategically. Right. That's a great question. So I'll try to answer that a couple of ways. What I'll preface this, I think the program between Hopkins and Micah's prepared me for that very well because you got to think about these two different schools have different personalities as far as the people that go there, who you're interacting with, etc. So I think knowing how to talk to a designer or artist in one way and being able to shift that conversation with a business person, what do they really care about, kind of helped me play Mm -hmm. that with the both schools. But I think there's always people, I don't want to say always, but there's naysayers now to this day. Like when you hear design thinking, human design, it's like, oh, you're just going to come in here and put some post-it notes on the wall and, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. But I think it's more <laughs> than that. You got to have to show them like the value. So like we're mm-hmm. doing this in order to bring this and this is the impact it's going to bring. So like from when I talk to a business person, it's like, okay, here's kind of like the case, the business case of what we're doing. This is our business hypothesis. We want to test this in order to see if we can grab more market share, et cetera, versus when I talk to the designer, if they need to say, okay, we need, this is the challenge when it comes to people. Like I've, I've worked in government, uh, uh, you know, engagements where we're looking at like the future of government benefits. It's like, imagine if your parents are older and they have disabilities and they need to get this type of benefit. Like, how can we make that experience easier for them? So just kind of having that why behind why we're doing this to each demographic and each person helps kind of create that case to, or why everybody can come together, converge and make an impact for the project overall. So I think being able to Kind of like I said, I mean, it's kind of like code switching for different people. But yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's essentially it. 
No, yeah. that, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, when you know, in, in some of the stuff that I'm doing, I'm you know, in the day job, you know, you might speak to a professor that uh, kind of is coming from their perspective, right? Like, okay, how's what's the students going to be? How am I going to deliver this? Um, what is the curriculum looking like? Things of that nature. Those are all considerations. And then when you're talking to, let's say, someone in IT or external affairs, how are we going to have this that they're able to use it online if we have to shift and pivot in that manner? And you're, you're, the way that you put it, code switching is very, is very apt, I think. Um, and, you know, really being able to understand what your process is and why you're doing it a certain way. Right. It's you truly have to be dipped in it. And I've written a few business cases and have had these strategic conversations and really can't take it personal too. It was like, okay, you're not getting it. I don't think you're going to yeah, get yeah. it. I mean, <laughs> trust me, I still have to like make a case and sometimes it doesn't go over well, but you just come back and you know what they say in design, like fail fast and, you know, get back <laughs> up and try again. So that's why you got to just figure out what their personality, what, What's in it for them? Like, why is it mm -hmm. important to them? And then once you figure that out, it's okay, I need to change this. And, you know, maybe I'll create a deck or something that has the impact first versus like, let me show you the prototype and why it's all yeah. good. Like some people are like, no, just show me the benefit, the numbers, whatever. So that's yeah. that's how you got to kind of work with it and be able to adapt to different people's personalities. So. It almost feels like a, sa a sales conversation at times, too. It's like, Somebody yeah, you know, like I, I used to work in um, – in uh, Verizon back in the day. And I remember we would put together like like sales pitches for these different call center calls. And it's like, all right, here's the skin in the game. This is why you should care. So you get that demographic information. This person has two kids. It's like, all right, right. we have these great right. television things here or, or what have you, this great programming. And their question at the end of the day is, why should I buy this? Well, here's the reason why. Right, right. It's funny you say that, but now I... Certain clients, when I see emails, like, okay, I got to talk to this person. I don't know who they are. Like, I, I try to do a quick Google search on them and look at their LinkedIn. I was like, okay, what? Let me try to figure out some angle where I have a connection or something. So, yeah. I find um, I have to do that in this podcast sometimes where a lot of times I know enough uh, from the person in terms of maybe their background questions and other interviews and things, but I don't know how they're going to relate to me. So I'm like, all right, if I have nothing, it's like, hey, man, so what'd you watch today? You know, just right, to get an right. idea. You watching WoW TV? You watching, you know, did you, I only read books. All right, I'm going to have to keep this very tight breast. <laughs> um, so, and I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's another one. Feel free to share. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you share a life experience that you feel that has kind of influenced your creative or strategic sensibility? That's a that's a great question. There's multiple life experiences that kind of shaped me. It's funny. I kind of got into, you know, just liking art and creativity overall. Then in high school, I took AP art history. So being in Atlanta, we used to go to the, the Hyde Museum of Art like almost every month, you know, so it's like. I love this visual aspect. I love them explaining, you know, what these pieces mean and stuff like that. And I think that kind of just kept my curiosity open to wanted to always be able to tap into some type of creative side. So like even me doing design work or um, learning how to shoot photography, I, I DJ as well. So like yeah. all this art and creativity has always been surrounded by me. Even my mother like played records all the time. So I think I don't think it's just one thing. It's like a multitude. And even hanging around other creative people that inspire me always kind of keeps me motivated. But I don't, that one, I don't have that one smoking gun. It's like, this is it. This changed my life. It's just, yeah. it's always been surrounded around me. So, yeah. 
yeah, being in a company of, of people who have a, a similar mindset, a similar approach to things. Right. And some people will say what iron sharpens iron or what have you. But I, I just think it's the energy that's around. Like, you know, you would hear about people back in the day, musicians hanging out and it's like, yeah, it's your jam session. It's yeah. a version of that, you know? Absolutely. So yeah. let's talk about the fun stuff, right? What What is the most fun or exciting point within your process? Like when you're coming up with some, a, a design project that you're working on, you're like, all right, is it fun when you're having those initial conversations and like, all right, how, how briefly can I get this over? Or is it fun once, okay, everyone's put to bed, everyone's good. What's the most fun or exciting point of the process for you? I think the fun part is actually coming together and actually building some type of prototype or experience or whatever we're going to create. So I would say, you know, most our design process, we start off with doing research. Mm-hmm. I would say the thing different from most designers, I do traditional, you do traditional ethnographic research, but I also will reach out and, I'll do, you know, secondary research, like what looking at trends and comparative analysis of different companies or whatnot. During that phase of the project, you don't you don't know what the solution is going to be. So I think I kind of enjoy that. Like, okay, I don't know what this was going to happen. But then after we do research and synthesize this information, then we start building something and when to see the client excited. So we actually build this experience or prototype of digital, whatever it is, whatever the product we develop, it could be digital, physical or whatnot, but seeing that client be happy with the results. And it's like, we started from scratch with nothing, like nothing in mind. And we actually built this out. Like I always get excited to do that. So that's kind of like what I enjoy and what I see is like building something like creating. That's, that's what I enjoy the most. That's the engineering side of things. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, And uh, the I think the realization of something that was an idea and it's like, yeah, this is where we're at now. Like I almost almost feel like when I have an idea or a concept that I write down and then like it's like, okay, did this make this happen? Moving this direction. It's strategically sound. It's making sense. I feel like a proud papa when something, something, you know, come to fruition. This is is your child from now on. Exactly. Exactly. So, and, and maybe this doesn't apply, but this is the last real question that I got for you um, okay. before I get to those rapid fire questions. So, what are one or two like traits or, or, or that are signatures for you as a designer? And, you know, what, like, when someone's looking at one of your like projects and it's like, yeah, this is definitely Brandon's, or like, what, what do you say is a signature of yours, perhaps? And, you know, what are you most proud of, I guess, in terms of those sorts of signatures or maybe a, a certain project that came to mind, that comes to mind? That's a great question. I would say most of my last project that I worked on, if you looked at it, since I work in multidisciplinary teams, I think I make my mark on something, but like the visual may be done by a, a visual designer or something like that. So I think the, that's a great question. I'm, I don't know, like from a conceptual perspective, it's like I always have input. Like I think thinking about it from all users perspective, like yeah. holistically and making sure that the project has value for a multitude of people. I think that's how you could probably, my signature is, is making sure is, is, you know, has viability, it's bringing people what they need, the business got what they wanted, the, the user or customer got what they wanted. But yeah. I, I wish I could say like, oh, you could look at that design and be like, <laughs> oh, this is, you can see the, the white space, that's a signature yeah. or something like that. It's harder on these multidisciplinary projects where you're working with at least three to five people. Um, yeah. But let me let me let me ponder on that some more. I, I, yeah. I don't that's I don't have a specific answer to that right now. But that's that's a great question. Well, thank you. Um, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think it is one of those things where you, and I think you touched on it, where the users, I think that's a piece of it. It's like, how crossover is this? How many people are using this? And right, how many people is it? Yeah, because, yeah. you know, you want something that is going to be adopted by the largest swath of people, not like this is very specialized because it almost turns into a niche thing. Like, I really like baseball, right? I, I watch baseball all the time. You don't want a closer. You know, you want someone that's good, but you want like a starter. It's like you can be out there. You can pitch to everyone. Right. No, that's real. I like that. I like yeah. that analogy for Thank sure. You. For sure. So I think now is a good time to kind of get to those rapid fire questions. I got five of them. They're okay. great. They're fun. You know, I think you're going to I think you're going to kill them. <laughs> the how, how many seconds do I get? This is like, is it a, we have a timer or I'm just. We, we, we don't have a timer, okay. but okay. We'll, we'll frame it like this. Um, first thing that like comes to mind, you don't want to overthink it, but sometimes it might require a little extra seasoning, a little extra, you know, richness in the question and okay. uh, the answer. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a more of a softball. You know, I'm sticking with the baseball analogy. Uh, <laughs> street smarts or book smarts? What do you value more? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I would say from us, I would say street smarts. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, during the um, the last couple of years, people have been just, people have had a lot of time on their hands to do things. I've seen multiple uh, Guinness World Records broken. What would you say uh, a world record out there that you have the best shot of beating? <laughs> Wow, that's, <laughs> that's, a that's a tough one, isn't it? That's a tough one. I never even thought about it. What are, what are the latest world records? Uh, at, at one point, I covered a world record of two guys. This is ridiculous, but two guys cracking um, walnuts with their heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. I think uh, it was one dude that uh, cracked. It was like uh, he cracked thirty-one walnuts um, with his head in one minute. And the guy he was competing against, because it was head to head. It was uh, twenty nine, so he beat them. He beat them by two. That was the record of thirty one uh, nuts at that time. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Records are crazy. <laughs> that's that's, that's crazy. I would say at one point I thought I was becoming a sneakerhead, so I was like, I was probably collecting sneakers. But I know people that collect way more sneakers than me, <laughs> so I would never have the world record for that. But that's something I I do love. But I don't know. That's yeah. That's, that's, I wanted to, I wanted to do one. this. I wanted to do a 24-hour podcast. I wanted to do a straight 24-hour podcast. I think that that's a record I can do, but I need to get my I need to get my stamina up for it, you know? That's hard. <laughs> Multiple Red Bulls and coffee. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's that's a great one. That's a that's a great question. That, yeah, that, I don't, uh, there's nothing that comes to mind like I like hiking. I would probably listen to music for 24 hours straight, but yeah. I would yeah, that's that's a good one. But I I'm pretty sure someone's broken that. Yeah, some of the records that are out there are wild. Like sometimes it's time-based records, sometimes it's volume-based. Um, I remember seeing one uh, that was like finishing a whole Capri Sun, like the normal size Capri Sun, in like fifteen seconds. I was like, someone's <laughs> gonna beat that record. What are you saying? <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Yes, it's crazy. But um, so in addition to um, all of these records being broken and all of that stuff over the last few years. We've had, and this might be a record for you, uh, longest Zoom meeting. Uh, what is the funniest thing you've ever witnessed during a Zoom meeting? Uh, of course, you've always seen people that that <laughs> wear things they shouldn't be doing or something like they stand up. I've seen that. Um, 
I mean, someone passed gas on a Zoom meeting, think they're on mute. That's a funny. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, but it's like your mic's on. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, oh well, you know. So those are some good ones that come to mind, or or someone falling asleep. That's that's another one. Yeah, I, 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 this is this is one dude. Um, he has a an Instagram or what have you, and he. He will go to a sporting events and he'll put a green screen in the background like he's not at a sporting event. He's like, yeah, oh, I'll just- yeah, yeah, I've seen that where people like they're on vacation and they got to get on a zoom. Yeah, like you'd be in a pool. Yeah, that's really cool. I've, yeah, I don't I, I haven't tried that. I don't think I, I would just, just in case. Who knows? But I guess I'm, not, I'm, I'm more risk averse. I'm not going to do that. But yeah, because you, you don't want to be the person that gets called out like you're on a group like um, like the gallery settings and it's like 50 people on there and they happen to see you. And it's like, ah, mm, exactly. I'm just going to put my screen on black. <laughs> what about you? What's the funniest thing you've seen? Um, I, I want to say I've, I've heard. So, you know, in, in the office, you, you know, you can tell people are kind of engaged and when they're not engaged. And it was one person that didn't put their their phone their, uh, their yeah they were on their iPhone they didn't put it on mute so you can hear oh, the prices right for the duration of the call in the background <laughs> and so they clearly were not um, listening they weren't on the call so you just hear just all of the sound effects from prices right and someone was like well I guess they uh, bet the wrong amount on that one I guess it was really <laughs> it's really funny yeah. uh, I think I actually did something similar I I was. It was a day where I had back-to-back meetings and I did not eat lunch. So I was like, let me just put something in my air fryer real quick. And I yeah. forgot to put myself on mute. And someone was like, is someone vacuuming back there? And I was like, oh, let me <laughs> do that. So I had to put mine on mute. But that was one of my embarrassing moments from Zoom, being on Zoom since the pandemic. So yeah. It's one of the wild things where the person that's um, the host of the Zoom, they got tired of your nonsense and they just like boot you out and don't let you back in. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. had that happen one time and I was like, I'm sorry. I was actually working. Right. Here's the last two. Uh, what was your last impulse buy? Had to be some sneakers. I'm, all, <laughs> I'm a sneakerhead. It's just like, oh, I saw them. They were on sneakers app. I was like, you know, sometimes I'm not sure you know what a sneakers app is. And I can't, but like you try to get the latest one. I was like, I'll just try and see. And, you know, I got the notification. It's like, oh, and, you know, I actually want them. So that was my last impulse buy. It's usually some type of sneaker for sure yeah. you had a nice jpeg that said got him you're like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't do the posting i used to but i was like oh, i don't need people to know what shoes i got they'll see them when i put them on my feet so yeah i used to do this thing because I'll, I'll have like every now and again i'll buy shoes like at a weird time and then i won't wear them for like a couple of years and then i just pull them out and they're like where'd you get those from I'm like oh these old exactly. things <laughs> i've been doing the same thing like i said I, I bought sneakers and i was like i forgot about these i look in the closet like why did I? Because I was like, oh, I need some black shoes. I was like, oh, I actually bought some black shoes three months ago. I just haven't worn them yet. So, yeah. And this is the uh, this is the last one. This is probably the the biggest one, but. Um so so sometimes we have to sometimes we can't bury our failures, our mess ups, our f's up, our f ups, as you will. Uh, what would you say your biggest mess up as a designer has been? And um, from that, what'd you learn from it? You know, things of that nature. My biggest, my biggest mess up as a designer. I would say initially when I got into the design field, switching from engineering, I would mm-hmm. say not giving people or even giving myself 
the time in order to build something or like the way I think I would try to project that onto other people so it's like I was I would ask people like why are you doing this this way like this is not going to get us toward a solution instead of me giving them the time and space to do that so I had a great manager one time he would you know it's like I see where that's going but let me just let you work on that for a few days I don't know exactly what you're doing but then it's like and it came out good he was like I saw that and I was like okay I need to take that when I'm dealing with more junior designers and sometimes I'll kind of I won't say force my will, but I was like, we should do this this way and this cadence and whatnot. So yeah. I won't say it's a failure, but it's something that I figured out from a more of a management style. It's like I need to allow, allow people the space and opportunity to build some, even though I may not know the direction is going, it may yeah. feel kind of weird, but yeah, like I think that's one of the, I will say opportunity areas where I learned to just, you know, sit back, embrace ambiguity a little bit more and see where something goes instead of like, making it align to the way I want to see it. So, yeah. yeah. And that's it, something I've, I've done that on a few projects and then it's like, okay, I need to stop doing that. So, yeah, it, yeah. it can be but a I challenge. Have of, I have lots of failures. I'm trying to think about other <laughs> ones. But just the process, allowing the process to work is one of the things I said I need to do better. It would have been great if you would have said like, no failures, never lost. I was oh, like, no. wow. <laughs> but I, but I, I find it's, it's partially one of these quotes out there um, where we talk about like people who are, who consider themselves masters of their field and people who are always like trying to grow and they kind of lend themselves to being more of a novice. I prefer right. to be in that kind of novice lane because I think it, you keep learning different things. You're able to empathize and kind of learn things in different ways. But right. I think when people view themselves as being a master and they have to return to something something that they feel like they've mastered, they're ill-equipped. Right, right, right. Yeah, I meant, yeah, exactly. But like thinking about client presentations or like I said, those times where you don't know the, the demographic and you're presenting this idea and they like, they just get, <laughs> you, you, know, you missed the mark there. <laughs> they, no, like go back. Like I've been on projects like, no, go back, redo that over. Like, so those are, I mean, they are failures to a certain extent, but then, you know, being able to recover from that, pick yourself up and, you know, having resilience is something that I think I possess that, you know, you got to kind of brush your shoulders off and keep it moving. So what was the thing you said earlier? Fail quickly or what have you? Yeah. Fail, fail fast, fail quickly. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Keep it moving. So, yeah. So that's pretty much all I had for the questions today. And I, and I thank you for being on this podcast. And um, in that, I want to invite and encourage you to um, the floor is yours. So feel free to tell the fine folks where to check you out, any of your work and any final words on the open studies program. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So check me out. My at is at Brandon D as in David Ball, B-A-L-L. I'm on Instagram. My LinkedIn handle is the same. I am on Twitter, but I don't tweet because I have some interesting thoughts that I probably need to keep to myself. So never I don't tweet too much unless it's like retweeting something I saw from someone else or letting someone know about an art event or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so those, that's where you can find me. Facebook as well, but I, I don't, I'm not a big on Facebook either these days. Um, open studies, like, a, what's something to think about from open studies? I just think the programs that they're doing, like, they got, I'm not sure if they are privy to let, let people know, but there's some new programs coming out with open studies I think people should be looking forward to that, you know, if you are creative or just want to, you know, tap into the creative field and want to put your stamp on it and thinking about pivoting in your career, you should look into micro open studies for sure. Because I mean, the design field, a lot of different companies and corporations are now embracing it. I know companies that are actually paying their employees to go back to get design degrees now. So it's a good space to be in. So just to 
keep your eyes and ears open for all the latest and greatest from Open Studies. So, So there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Brandon Ball for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, design, community, problem solving in and around your neck of the woods. You just got to look for it. 